Hi, welcome to this episode of the Medicaid Transformation Podcast. Uh, my name is David Smith, and in a moment, I'm going to have an opportunity to introduce Dr. Mark Harrison, who's the CEO of the Entermountain Healthcare System in Utah. Uh, prior to that, we do want to express our appreciation to our partner in this podcast, Ziegler, uh, who has recently published a new white paper we're excited to tell you a little bit about. Um, the name of the paper is Deconstructing the Telehealth Industry, Part 3, Enabling Clinicians to Do More Good for More People. Uh, this is, of course, the third installment in Ziegler's Deconstructing the Telehealth Industry series, and it's authored by resident virtual care expert Grant Chamberlain, along with his colleagues Jenny Poth and Clayton Wilson. Uh, and it really brings to light some of the latest trends and best use cases in the industry that, that does use language and graphics that make the material very easy to understand, to interface with, uh, even for those of us who may not be as deeply familiar with virtual care. Uh, one of the things we like about it is that it does go uh, in-depth to describe how virtual care uh, is being used to better address uh, several of the challenges that we find facing vulnerable communities uh, and neighborhoods uh, within the Medicaid system. Uh, many of the challenges or opportunities we discuss regularly in this podcast. So for those of you who are in search of a thoughtful, innovative uh, way to break down these solutions. It's definitely a good read. If you click on the show notes, um, whatever version of a podcast application you're using, you'll be able to find a link to that white paper uh, with our compliments. So for this discussion, uh, it was quite a special opportunity to spend a few minutes with uh, Dr. Harrison. Uh, some of our listeners uh, will certainly be familiar with uh, Mark and uh, others may, uh, may know him personally. Others may be hearing his name for the first time. Uh, if, you, if you're not aware of who he is, um, I promise you'll hear his name more and more uh, as you move forward because uh, Mark is a, a thoughtful uh, driven, mission-focused uh, leader that's uh, not only leading uh, an important system in this country, um, but, but does work that transcends uh, his state and his system uh, with colleagues um, uh, from, from across the country and across the globe. Uh, Dr. Harrison is the president and CEO of Intermountain Healthcare, um, and he's also a pediatric critical care physician uh, with a strong track record as a top operations executive on a global scale. Uh, he uh, is a national and international thought leader on transformation and innovation, ranking in Fortune Magazine's top 50 world's greatest leaders in 2019, uh, also ranked second among uh, modern healthcare's most influential physician executives and leaders, and tied for second on its list of the 100 most influential people in healthcare in 2018. As I dig into the discussion with Dr. Harrison, you'll get a sense for uh, why those accolades have been uh, extended to him. Prior to his time at Intermountain, he served as the CEO of Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi, Chief of International Business Development at Cleveland Clinic, and uh, Chief Medical Operations Officer. <coughs> He received his undergraduate degree from Haverford College, his medical degree from Dartmouth Medical School, completed a pediatric residency and pediatric care fellowship at Enter Mountain's Primary Children's Hospital, and a Master of Medical Management at Carnegie Mellon uh, University. He's also an All-American triathlete and represented uh, the U.S. at the 2014 World Championships, uh, husband, 
uh, father, uh, all around just good person, has done more uh, with, with his life than uh, I would probably aspire uh, to, to, to be able to do uh, in my own. Uh, we were able to cover a wide range of topics uh, in our discussion, uh, focusing on some of Intermountain's work in the most vulnerable parts of uh, Utah State, uh, Intermountain's disposition as it seeks to play a role in, in improving uh, Utah's uh, mental health infrastructure and, and uh, driving down deaths of despair in the state, and then many of the other uh, innovative platforms that Intermountain has uh, created to drive highly unique solutions throughout the system. I think you'll enjoy uh, uh, listening to the conversation just as much as uh, I enjoyed having it with uh, Dr. Harrison. Well, Dr. Harrison, thanks for taking the time to sit down with me this afternoon. You are uh, you're officially the third discussion we're having in our uh, in the Medicaid transformation podcast and um, the thing that was most interesting uh, for me in, in having this discussion um, actually probably revolves around two areas. One, I'm a, I'm a Utah native. I was born and bred here, and Utah is home, and it's a place that I, I care a lot about. Um, but more importantly, you know, Inner Mountain, I think for decades, has, um, has really been the, the leader in healthcare in this community and, and is nationally renowned for the the clinical programs and the different initiatives that, that have been advanced over time. And the organization's attention has seemed to, to shift a bit um, with your installment as its uh, CEO and how you're beginning to think about whole person care, the biopsychosocial continuum, and other really fundamental um, elements in the community that we know link to health. And that's so seminal to the work we're doing with the project and I um, wanted to find a few minutes to visit with you. Great, my pleasure, thanks for the opportunity. Uh, the, you know, the first thing I wanted to just do to tee this up is there is a, uh, there's a, there's a quote we found as we were kind of preparing for this um, where in July 2019, uh, you were captured as saying, Intermountain Inter Healthcare's mission is to help people live the healthiest lives possible. This commitment is the same no matter where, when, or with whom people get care. Um, can you just unpack that philosophy a little bit and how you've tried to instill that culturally and then the work you've done at the institution since you got here? Thanks, that, that's a tall order of business, right? So that, you know, that is something we try and do operationally, but it's also aspirational, obviously, as well. You know, this is a pretty complicated business we're in, a complicated mission we get to serve. Um, you know, at, at, the, at the most operational level, uh, I feel really strongly, um, and I think my team absolutely feels strongly, that regardless of where you are in our broad footprint, that you should get consistent care. Um, that does not mean cookie cutter care, but it means that, you know, it's very reasonable for a person to expect that they would get the same safety and quality and patient experience and affordability uh, regardless of where they are in the system. And um, as we've pulled um, this fantastic enterprise into one Intermountain, this has been one of the tenets. And I'll give you an example of um, something that has gone really well, uh, and that has been around um, our stroke care across the system and beyond. So we have um, uh, one uh, joint commission um, certified Stroke Center here, and it's at Intermountain Medical Center. Uh, it 
It has the highest level of accreditation that you can get and gets terrific results. Um, when we really looked hard at our 23 hospitals, uh, you could see that there was a great deal of variability in door-to-needle time. So that from the time you come in with stroke symptoms to the time you get a clot-busting drug through an IV. And um, taken as a whole, we actually looked pretty good um, in terms of our average door-to-needle set time. We met all of the national guidelines. But when you actually dissected it out, you could see that there were some parts of the enterprise that really performed beautifully, and there were some that were pretty average, or maybe even worse than average. And by working together, having the clinicians work together and the administrative leaders work together, that's been harmonized now. And not only um, have the overall times dropped, but we're seeing some extraordinary clinical results, um, which are both anecdotal and systematic, that we know that this one intermountain approach where people can expect the same excellence regardless of where you are, it's actually taken people who would either be dead or badly debilitated and they're leading normal lives now. And it doesn't take very many examples of that for people to get really enthusiastic about this harmonization of care. Um, I think, you know, on a, on a broader front, um, you know, you, you can think about that, um, that statement in terms of socioeconomics also. So we are really proud at Intermountain to take care of everybody. Um, and we take care of them without regard for their ability to pay. And we are highly aware of concerns around inequity and health disparities. And when, you, when we look carefully at ourselves, we still have work to do. But the idea that um, our Medicaid and uninsured populations um, get the same excellence um, in general that everyone else does means a lot to us. And I think a lot of people actually come to work here because they love the medicine and they love the caring for others, but they also love the social mission as well. So we strive um, to, to even those things out, not only between facilities, but between socioeconomic um, strata as well. Um, that's helpful. It's a nice segue to talking a bit about this social determinants work that, that you're doing. But before making that pivot, I'd be interested in the stroke care example. As, as you looked across the 23 facilities and you began trying to identify the locus of clinical variation, what were some of the things that, that um, you unearthed that might have been uh, cultural, uh, financial, um, something based in the community, workforce, and, and do you see any you know, as you, as you equivocate that with um, socioeconomics, do you see corollaries? Do you see areas where clinical variation might, might, might just exist as a general matter and so you can learn things from the stroke care so, experience? Um, <clears throat> um, so you said you, so let's be really clear, it's not me, right? It's the, it's the very talented people who work on these programs. And uh, they function on the tenet of um, of information sharing and data sharing and appealing to uh, people's best intentions and best nature. And what we found is the same thing you see almost any time you're trying to change clinical behavior is if you share data and you show people where they stack up compared to best practice, um, they, if they're at the top of the heap, they think they can always still do better. And if they are at the bottom of the heap, they want to catch up desperately because 
they've gone into healthcare for all the right reasons. Uh, and those are the sorts of things that harmonize practice um, relatively quickly and relatively painlessly. The clinical variation generally um, occurs when people function in very small units. And so they practice the way they were trained. They practice based on local custom, all with good intentions, right? Um, but when you look at things holistically as an enterprise, you can see there's a lot of variation. And um, so this transparency in a culturally safe environment um, really goes a long way uh, towards evening things out. So you go from one of our small hospitals, which I won't share exactly which one it is, where they said, oh, um, you know, we believe that, you know, people over X number of years of age should never get TPA, that's the clot-busting drug, despite what the guidelines say, to showing them their data and how they are not performing as well, to now they're completely on board and um, their patients are doing terrific. I think that's a, it's a really um, useful corollary and I think matches at least the disposition we've, we've had in thinking much more critically about data, helping to isolate and quantify the nature of, of the opportunity or the challenge. Uh, and I think that to your point, that can be, that can be applied in a number of different uh, cases, whether we're looking at a specific disease state or we're looking at areas related to socioeconomics. I also just want to call it, I love the line, transparency in a culturally safe environment. That's a really, I think it's a really important notion. That so I, look, doctors yeah. and nurses are very smart. If you beat them with the data, they will hit you back. <laughs> you know, they, they will twist it, they won't believe it, they will treat it as a weapon used against them. Um, if you share with them performance and ask for their opinions, they will um, use their brains and their skills and their mission orientation to do good things with it. Um, so it really has to be done right. Now, I guess in very rare occasions, you'll find people who are just plain old bad, but that's so unusual, right? Yeah. Um, that there's generally something else wrong. Yeah. Um, so I think this is a time-tested um, approach to changing, particularly physician behavior. You know, one of my mentors said, uh, doctors are data-driven, goal-oriented, and competitive. And if you take advantage of those three characteristics in a thoughtful way, you can get all kinds of change made, even when it's actually bad for their pocketbooks. Um, because, again, they did go into taking care of other people for all the right reasons, regardless of whether they're salaried or fee-for-service or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think that's probably maybe just a, a fourth element you could add to that, uh, Mark, which is that it, it, from, from physicians to mid-level practitioners to paraprofessionally trained um, uh, staff, this is that most of us wake up every day and we chose this particular line of business um, because of a sense of compassion or, or desire to have some impact. Um, let's 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 pivot for a minute to. I want to just unpack the the work uh, Inner Mountain has done in, in this social determinants area. And in 2018, um, I, th I think Inner Mountain was was key in the formation and advancing of an initiative called the uh, Utah Alliance for the Determinants of Health. Yes. Can you just spend a minute describing? I, I guess two key questions here. You know, what is it, and and what are you actively doing? And how did it come about? Who's at the table and 
How was that significant? So um, it came about in the back of a Chevy Suburban. So Governor Levitt and I were going to um, a meeting in Chicago, and, um, and I said to him, you know, I've got a car coming, you want to share a ride? And we had this really wonderful conversation. He's, a, he's an amazing person who is a personal hero of mine. I mean, and I think knows and understands more about uh, value than anybody I know. And he also has impeccable values himself. So we were, we were in the back of this truck and um, I was relatively new in my role. And I was asking him how he thought um, I might be able to use Intermountain to do as much good as possible for other people. And we started talking about disparities based on geography. And the idea that, you know, the idea that your zip code may be more important than your genetic code, a phrase that's almost become trite at this point, right? Um, and um, then we started to noodle on the idea, well, how about if we were able to identify a couple of um, geographic areas in the state of Utah where Intermountain had a big presence um, and where, where disparities really existed? And could we actually do a demonstration project in couple of these areas and show that we can actually move the needle um, and then learn about how social determinant work may be operationalized to really drive better health status for people. And um, Mike's team and my team started to actually really work on dissecting this out. And the Utah Alliance is the output of that work. And at this point in time, we have two geographic areas. One is an urban area in the city of Ogden, Utah, um, that has lots of urban problems. So, you know, you can imagine it might be drugs, it might be violence, um, poverty, you know, poor housing stock, all kinds of stuff. Um, and the other is an area down near St. George, Utah, in a rural area um, that has rural health care poverty-associated things, lack of transportation is like a huge one down there in terms of getting to, to the doctor. <clears throat> Both areas have high emergency department usage and lower than expected lifespans and a number of other higher than expected um, rates of substance abuse, etc. cetera. Uh, as it happens, and we were careful in choosing them, and again, it's not me, it's the team, right? Extraordinarily talented people. We have about 4,000 Medicaid um, members who Intermountain is responsible for in our managed Medicaid approach in each of these geographies. And those are the, the test population. And the Alliance takes a, um, a sort of a public-private partnership model where we've got government folks and not-for-profits in the community and Intermountain, and we've woven them together to uh, try and develop a collective impact approach to changing the health of these people. And um, so we started back in January after, and, and by the way, this is very hard work. Operationally, it's very complicated. So we had to get the emergency departments on board with workers in the emergency departments. We had to get a software platform in place to begin to harmonize um, what resources people were getting. You know, some of these um, folks actually have four and five caseworkers, depending on their circumstances. Um, and so their lives are really complicated. I don't have any idea how they manage to get things done because there's just so much bureaucracy they have to put up with. So the really exciting news that we just saw earlier this week is one of the metrics we're following is um, 
emergency department visits per thousand um, per thousand members, and we've actually already had a three percent drop in emergency department visits. Wow, a amazing! Yeah, like really amazing. Um, and I think that's going to continue, and we're learning as both qualitatively and quantitatively what it takes to move the needle. And um, so I'm really optimistic about that. So that's the alliance. It's a three-year project. Okay, and a three-year project, you're about a year? A little less, um, about nine months in. Nine months in, okay. And um, Intermountain has committed uh, $2 million per year per, per site times three years. So we've made an economic investment in this project that we are always really careful to say, this is not charity that we're doing. We're fine with providing charity people. This is really an exercise in trying to systematically learn how to care for this population and ha hopefully do it reproducibly. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the, um, the replicability of that for, for just a, a second. Um, there's, uh, a, there's a report I know that came out a couple weeks ago that, that's hitting a bit on the, the state of Utah and um, where it is in mental health. And, yeah. and every, I think every state in the country is going through this. I lament that every single health system we're interacting with, this is just one of the burning things they're thinking about. And it feels in many ways that this alliance um, begins to, to really start to shape uh, community assets in a way that, that begin to, to drive out and address that. How, how are you thinking about that replicability? Recognizing you still have a couple of years to learn about these things, well, but yeah. how, how do you see you know, five, six, seven years out? What are the critical success factors, not just for Intermountain, but the critical success factors for a community in Utah between policymakers and health plans and business to really get at the heart of, of those opportunities? So, um, I mean, this is one that hits close to home for every family, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know a family in the United States that isn't touched in one way or another by behavioral health issues. So whether it's depression or suicidality or bipolar disease or substance abuse or some combination thereof. So if it isn't their family, it's their next door neighbor. I mean, this is, this is a really big problem. And um, we are really aware um, that hiring ourselves out of this problem, you know, hiring enough psychiatrists, hiring enough psychologists, it's impossible actually. Yeah. And, um, there's and not enough money or... There's not enough money, there's not enough people. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the things that's really exciting to us about the Alliance work is it's really predicated on a community health worker model, right? Um, very much like Paul Farmer, um, um, did in Haiti around multidrug resistant TB or that he and Jim Kim did in South Africa around really poor people out in villages who had HIV and how do you get them their medication. So we're taking that community health worker model for the Alliance and we think that's actually going to play a really big role in addressing the, um, the behavioral health crisis. So yes, we will keep hiring psychiatrists, we'll keep hiring psychologists, we will keep embedding people both virtually and in person in clinics. Um, yes, we will actually look for uh, digital approaches to cognitive behavioral therapy and to screening because there's actually some pretty good evidence and new products that suggest that we may be able to take a digital approach that can help screen people and you know, uh, provide scale to these poor folks who are suffering. But we also think it may be people without advanced degrees who function in their neighborhoods with some 
relatively easily delivered specialized training that can actually help us a lot be early warning systems for folks who are going off the rails. Yeah. Um, and, I, I, and so even though I say this is a crisis and we don't know exactly what, I'm very optimistic, right, that, um, that we're going to get on top of this, but I really and truly believe it's going to take a different approach because this is that classic example of you do the same thing and expect a different result, that's insanity, right? Yeah. So we've tried the usual, just like everyone has, and it's not working as well as it should. So let's try something new. Yeah, well, it's an optimism I share. You know, if, 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 there's, if there's a fundamental access problem in this country that, you know, around behavioral health, and, and the way you might solve an access problem is you would increase supply. The traditional ways of increasing supply by hiring clinically trained professionals um, and there's, we, we literally can't spend any more money on that. There has to be other ways to extend, to, to shift that supply curve. And I think what you're describing in paraprofessionally trained uh, people in communities uh, to extending through technology, whether that's a, a synchronous connection or a digital triage function that can facilitate co online cognitive behavioral therapy or other forms of, of triage and um, uh, and uh, direction. Those yeah. are those are critical. So as a um, so I'm a pediatric intensivist. I am not a behavioral health specialist by training. My gut tells me that as the digital world has permeated our lives, we've seen a parallel rise in the behavioral health problems. I mean, I think the isolation, the depers the dehumanization. Um, for kids especially, the bullying, the sense that you're always on, there's nowhere to hide. Um, you know, the unrealistic lifestyles, you know, everyone looks happy on somebody else's Facebook page, right? It's like, why are they having such a good time when I'm having such a crappy day? Yeah. Um, I think it all actually kind of goes together. It, it would seem to me like turnabout is fair play if we could figure out how to use the digital world to solve some of the problems that I believe it has exacerbated. Because uh, it has scale, it has power, it has penetration. Um, but I'd like to figure out how we could use that for good. That's a, that's a, that's a really interesting point of view. Um, I, I, I fully agree. Let, let's, let's pivot um, again for a moment and talk. What, one, of the, one of the other facets around the work um, that you all are doing at Intermountain is you have, you have been able to identify systematic fractures in the system um, that, the, that the market has not really solved for. Capital markets haven't solved for, solutions markets haven't solved for, and, and you've begun to put uh, the, the expertise of the organization and capital to work in forming solutions that you think uh, mend those fractures. And we don't have time to go deep into all four of these, but four examples are Alucio, Reimagined Primary Care, Castell and Civic RX, which is a popular one. Those are sort of really interesting platforms you've developed. I'd be interested, any commentary you want to give on any of those would be fascinating, but, but maybe the bigger question is how have you thought about problem or fracture identification all the way to creating a platform? Um, what are the principles that are driving that and what do you see the, the end game being? So, um, so first of all, um, those are really cool ideas, um, and I can't take credit for one of them, not a single one of them. Um, and I'd, the, the one I'd add to the list of, that, uh, of those is um, Healthcare Partners Nevada Acquisition. 
So Yeah, this is recent. So really recent, very large acquisition. First time ever that a legacy healthcare system has done growth at scale by um, acquiring a group that is uh, explicitly meant to keep people well and not just fill hospital beds. It's very interesting. Like so, we're and and what I would say is, uh, as the CEO of the team here, um, my job is actually to provide really clear guardrails that fit our strategy. And if our strategy is to keep people well and to have their care be affordable, um, the guardrails around growth, around population, are that we will only grow in ways that don't just drive volume, but actually drive population health and value. So each of the examples that you gave, whether it's a Lucio or Civica, um, et cetera, Castell, each of those were ideas from somebody on our team that um, we were able to hear the idea and understand it and then resource it, turn it into something real and powerful. But each of them has the commonality that they are con concurrent with they're consistent with that, um, with those guardrails. They they will not just drive volume. They're not designed just to make rev more revenue. The easiest thing for somebody like me to do would be we've got a very strong balance sheet. Just go out and buy a bunch of hospitals, right? Um, and drive our top line way up, and we would look big. We'd be even more powerful than we are. Yeah. But that isn't right. We don't believe that's right, and so. These ideas, the commonality there is how do we take the creativity of our team and then clear the way for them so that we can do big, meaningful, at scale things that are going to drive, that are going to change the value equation for whole populations. What do you think differentiates um, the people on your team and an organization like Intermountain and in being able to identify, curate, create, implement, scale those, con th those ideas? Um, and how is that differentiated from how capital markets and investors and other entrepreneurs have thought about the market? So I think a couple of ways. So first of all, credit to the founders of Intermountain, right? Um, I think that's really, um, you know, I think the fact that although we are a non-relit, I guess, how do we say this? We're a secular organization. I, people in the organization are religious, <laughs> but um, we're not affiliated with the LDS Church, for instance. But the original assets came from the LDS Church, and the idea that we were asked to be a model healthcare system and have care be accessible and affordable for all people, I think regardless of one's faith tradition, that resonates, right? Yeah. Um, and I think people have come to work here because they wanna, they wanna make a difference in a positive way for other people. And um, so I think that is super powerful. And our governance has always been willing to allow us to forego revenue in the interest of doing the right thing. So how is that different from for-profits in the capital market? I am really fortunate. I don't have the tyranny, tyranny of the quarterly earnings call, right? Mm -hmm. we, make, can, we can make really long-term investments, some of which don't make any seeming economic sense in the short run. Almost all of them pay off in the long run because doing the right thing, usually you can find a business case for it down the road. Um, so I think that's probably the biggest difference. Um, and you know, I've got plenty of friends who are for-profit CEOs, and I think they love their jobs, and in some ways they're simpler than ours is because we've got this huge stakeholder base in the community that is highly vari varied, and they have one real job, which is to make money for their shareholders, right? Yeah. Um, but 
I think they also envy the fact that we get to drive mission as hard as we do. Um, so I think that's a little bit that's of a difference. That's helpful. That's a really interesting. I know we're at time. Uh, concluding question really yeah. fast. You mentioned optimism a little before. Mm -hmm. I did. What is the one thing that, that, that fills you with optimism uh, about the system? So what makes me optimistic about Intermountain as a system is we've got great people. Um, and everyone says that. Um, I get to see it every day. And um, so I, I, that is, I think that's our, our secret sauce. What makes me optimistic about the ecosystem as a whole, and this is going to sound, this is kind of painful, is it is so ripe for disruption. It's fat. It's wasteful. It's way too big. Um, it's largely untransformed. Uh, most, if not many, of the big players um, have their heads deep in the sand and are just praying that, you know, change never really comes. What does that mean? That means lots of money coming off the sidelines, lots of disruptors, lots of very innovative solutions to things. Um, and um, what, I, what I say regularly is healthcare will be higher quality and less expensive. Um, it will be because the market forces will work. The question is who gets to provide it. Yeah. Um, so I think Americans are going to be okay. Um, and I think some of our peers are going to be okay. Some of them are going to be greatly diminished and some of them are going to be really successful. Um, and we're going to work as hard as we can at Intermountain to make sure that we're really successful because we want to be here forever for the communities we serve. Dr. Mark Harrison, thank you for the time and the work you're doing, and um, we'll look forward to coming back and grabbing a, another uh, moment with you in the, you. the months and years ahead. I'm, I'm privileged. Thank you. Thank you.